Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we're reading The Cloudburst at Pine Creek, an American adventure by W.D. Morris. This story was first published in The People's Friend on March 7th, 1910, and is narrated for us by Friend production editor Judy Struth. Over to Judy. express train stopped at Pine Creek, so Miss Bertha Summers changed cars at Connellville and came on with the slow local. When at length she reached Pine Creek and stood solitary on the planks that formed the railway platform, her heart, it must be admitted, sank just a little. She could not help for the moment, contrasting the small, plasterless, pine-board room with its single telegraph instrument, of which she was to be the new operator, with the spacious, ornate offices of the Central Telegraph Company, where she had lately fingered the Morse keys. But the palatial buildings of that company, with many another, were at that moment lying in ruins, shattered by the earthquake and blackened by the fire that had swept the city. And telegraph operators' posts or indeed, posts of any description, were as scarce in Oakland as those in lack of them were plentiful. So when they had offered her the unpretentious position of operator at Pine Creek, on the lately opened branch of the C, P and K, she had straightway accepted it. Pine Creek Township, it is to be confessed, did not possess an attractive appearance. Its chief building some distance to the rear of the depot, was an unpainted two-storey board structure whose signboard bore the high-sounding title of the Great Western Hotel. To the left of it was a sawmill, rough-boarded on top, the sides open to the free air of the Sierras, with a tall iron smokestack rising above the roof. Humped around these two structures were a score or more of lumbermen's shanties. In front of the depot, dotting sparsely the slopes of a narrow valley or gulch, were the abandoned miners' cabins that told of the short-lived gold rush of two years before. The mine turned out a shicer, though there were those who maintained that the load which had vanished so suddenly was somewhere hidden in the neighbourhood of the gulch. All that remained of the ill-starred venture were the decaying cabins and the roughly built stone dam near the head of the gulch, from which the pent-up waters of the creek had been led to the mine by a long, slender flume. Bertha Summers was still contemplating her novel surroundings when the stationmaster, Hank Ford, who was also yardman, switchman and everything else, after having dispatched the local and released the red signal arm, approached. You're the new operator, I reckon, miss, he said with a friendly expression. My name's Hank Ford, and I'm Bertha Summers, replied the girl, smiling in turn. We hear and tell of your coming, miss, and Miss Ford allows you can board with us. 
Maybe you won't care for the hotel. Oh, that's very kind of her, if it isn't too much trouble. Trouble? Nope, Hank Ford returned emphatically. Pine Creek ain't a great outfit yet, maybe, but we're getting on. If they'd just find that there lost load, we'd beat Connellville. But you're tired, I guess. Come along, and I'll introduce you to Miss Ford. It was a clear, bright day in early summer, some two months later. The air came sweet and fresh, laden with the scent of pines, as Bertha sat by the window in the little operator's room, looking out dreamily on the gulch, which ran back, ever narrowing, to the foot of the snow-tipped Sierras. An open book, one of a parcel, dropped the previous day by the slow local, lay in her lap, but her thoughts for the moment had flown from it. The new life at Pine Creek, with its quiet charm of tall, dark, silent forest, deep gulch and rocky canyon, had laid its spell upon her. Even the rude cabins seemed somehow to have taken on a different air, in harmony with their forest surroundings. She wondered dreamily of those first regrets of two months before. The clicking of the telegraph instrument, which stood on a table near the window, roused her from her thoughts. C-R-C-K, it called insistently. She rose hastily and answered the call. Are you the operator at Pine Creek? I'm troubleshooting up among the hills. There was a fault in one of your wires, and I've just repaired it. Wish they'd use wireless, by the way. Do you pick me up all right? Yes, but not easily. Don't telegraph so fast, please. Do you call that fast? All right, I'll talk slower. I was wondering if you'd care to exchange news sometimes. It's pretty lonely up here among the snowsheds, with only the watchman for companion. I should fancy so. It isn't a great outfit down here. What sort of place have you? I'm new to this quarter, you see, and I haven't got your length. Oh, quite a one-horse settlement. Lumbermen's cabins, a sawmill and a hotel. But they've staked out a planing mill and talk of building a new hotel. You're far before me. There's only one shack up here. The watchman's cabin where I hang out. What's your handle, by the way? Yes, I was asking your name. We can talk better after a mutual introduction. Oh, I'm Bert Summers, to those who know me. She smiled mischievously as she rattled confusedly the final letter of the first word. Bert what? Oh, Bert A. Summers, is it? Well, Bert, I'm John Fanshaw. Plain Jack to my friends, of whom I hope you'll make one. Thanks, I feel honoured. What made so good an operator as you, Mr. Jack, take up troubleshooting among the hills? Two freight trains meeting end on. I was in the train dispatcher's room then, at trainer on the CP and K. Was it serious? The collision, I mean. Only to myself. No other damage. And what took you to Pine Creek? The study of nature in her wild moods? Don't be sarcastic, please. It was the quake at Frisco. They're not in great need of operators there at present. I should fancy not. A big quake like that does a lot of shifting. You're a bit rusty, I see, in your telegraphing. You should brush it up a little. I'd be glad to do so if you'd show me how. I'll send over the wire something quick now and again, if you like, to give you practice. Oh, thanks ever so much. It's very good of you. 
That's all right then. Time's up, I'm sorry. I've got a job waiting me some miles on the other side. Hope to begin these lessons soon. It was some six months since the unfortunate contretemps between the two freight trains had thrown Jack Fanshawe out of his berth at Trainer. An accident, it may be said in passing, for which he was not altogether to blame, but the full onus of which he had rather quixotically taken upon his own shoulders. After five months wandering in search of another place, he had been glad to take the post of troubleshooter or linesman on the CP and K. It was a lonely, arduous life up there among the snowsheds, full of peril too, when the storm winds of winter broke loose and roared through the pine tops and the weight of falling snow broke down the wires. But the deadliest peril to be feared was the firing of the snowsheds by some chance spark from the expresses that roared through their darkened length. That peril had led to the company's fitting up a watchman's cabin among the windswept heights. This cabin Fanshawe had made his headquarters, sallying forth from it with his repairing apparatus slung on his back to remedy any reported defects in the wires. After the busy train dispatcher's room at Trainer, this new life naturally struck hardly, and Jack Fanshawe had taken an early opportunity of enlarging his social horizon by getting in touch with his nearest neighbour westward at Pine Creek. That was the beginning of a not infrequent wire correspondence, and as it went on, Jack Fanshawe began to conceive a strong liking for his western neighbour. There was a brightness and a willingness to learn, united to something about him peculiarly sympathetic and innocent he could not exactly define that insensibly drew Jack to make him a confidant in his plans for a not remote future, when C, P and K should come to find out his worth as an operator. All of which was well-pleasing to the little operator at Pine Creek. What girl is indifferent to the ambitions of a man in whom she feels interested? And in the diary she had begun to keep, in which the troubleshooter was referred to as her unknown correspondent, might be read such entries as My unknown correspondent is certainly energetic. Two messages today from him, from Harding's Gulch and Trainer's Siding. Heard about him in that affair at Trainer. Took upon him, it seems, all the blame for a cross order given by a young fellow operator. You're a good sort, Mr Jack Fanshawe. Wonder if we'll ever meet. So far, the troubleshooter's work had not brought him near enough to Pine Creek to permit of his looking in upon his neighbour there, and the Westerner never seemed able to quit the post. For, of course, there was no one who could act as substitute. So it came that after a full month they had not once met, but what daily common circumstances fail to effect, fate or chance or whatever else it may be termed, has a way at times of bringing about. It was a day of sultry, oppressive heat towards the end of a hot June when Jack Fanshawe found himself called up to go out and repair a fault in the wires where they skirted the slope of Big Bear Mountain. A thin, hot steam seemed to fill all space, through which the sun looked faintly dim, yet out of which there seemed to beat as from the open door of a furnace an intolerable heat. 
Fanshawe had repaired the fault, a trifling one due to a cracked cup, and had paused, seated outside a crossbar, near the top of the tall telegraph standard, to look towards Pine Creek, which lay hidden among the timber some six miles below. Suddenly, he became aware that the hot, still haze had changed to a brownish-green hue. Over the snow-tipped peaks of the Sierras, where they frowned down upon the gulch, hung a thick, black, swirling mass of cloud that seemed to be pitching forward, as if to fall upon and overwhelm the valley beneath. Even as he watched, fascinated by the majestic spectacle, the cloud broke and swept down towards the gulch, pouring earthward its pent-up flood of waters. The chilling air that drove before it struck him with a quick shiver, and at the same instant there flashed to him the thought, would they see in time the peril that was sweeping down upon them at Pine Creek? Could he get there in time to warn them of it? Descending hurriedly, a few yards brought him to the railway track, by the side of which lay the light hand car by which he commonly travelled over the line. Lifting the car onto the rails, he pushed it forward, sprang on board, and working rapidly the walking beam, sped away westwards with ever-increasing speed. In the drowsy hush of the stifled heat, the little operator at Pine Creek had watched the hours drag languidly on. The westbound local had passed, but there were still four long hours until the last stopping freight was due, when she might leave the little room, with its intolerable heat, for the cooling shade of the thick forest. She had called up her eastern neighbour, but had received no reply, and to fight off the drowsy languor, had taken up a textbook on electricity, sent by him a few days before, but the pages ere long faded imperceptibly from her vision and a deeper silence settled over the room, scarce stirred by the girl's faint breathing as she slept. The minutes passed while she slept on, unconscious of the black mountain of flood that swirled ominously far above the gulch. The air grew strangely chill, and the sleeper stirred uneasily. A dull booming sound broke the stillness of the room, and the girl opened her eyes with a quick start to glance out through the window. The sight that met her gaze held her rooted to the spot. Down the gulch, a great wall of water, foam-crested, was sweeping irresistibly, licking up the sand and gravel of the dry coulee as it rushed onward. The cloudburst had struck and swept away the dam, Louder and clearer each instant boomed the roar of the waters. Fascinated, for some moments she watched their headlong rush, unconscious yet of her peril. Then, as the water struck the embankment on which the track run above the coulee and checked for the moment, surged along the green barrier, a low cry escaped her lips. She turned and sped through the open doorway, glancing wildly round. The little platform was deserted. Hank Ford, the man of all work, had betaken himself half an hour before to the tavern, where his off hours were commonly spent, despite the good Miss Ford's daily injunctions. 
and the water was now rearing its crest over the embankment. Her one faint hope of escape lay along the track where it ran eastward and began to climb upwards to the line of snowsheds. Could she gain the rising ground in time? The water, now lapping the metals as it swept over the embankment, showed her it was too late. Simultaneously, with the cry that rose involuntarily to her lips, the handcart propelled by Fanshawe's muscular arms swept into view round an intervening curve on the track to the embankment. A shout from the car told her she had been seen, and a few moments later it was alongside the platform. For a single instant, Jack Fanshawe stared at the slight figure, then, The operator! Bert, where is he? he questioned hurriedly. I I am the operator here, she said unsteadily. You? There... He broke off abruptly. Quick, there's not a moment to lose. The water's rising fast. Without waiting for a reply, he drew her towards the car, but a single glance showed him it was already too late to get back to the rising ground. He cast a hopeless look round him, saw one desperate chance of escape and took it. Growing out from the foot of the embankment a few yards distant was a stunted pine tree, its branches almost overshadowing the track. The tree! It's our only chance! he shouted, seizing the walking beam and working it desperately. Short as the distance was, the current was washing across the car as he sprang to his feet and clutching a low branch that projected outward from the trunk swung himself upward. Seated firmly astride it, he bent forward and the next instant, with a sudden effort, had drawn up the girl beside him. A near thing, but we've done it, he exclaimed cheerily. It's only a wait of an hour or two till we get to earth again. These cloudbursts end about as quickly as they come. But the people, do you think they... She began, glancing fearfully across to the clearing by which the cabins stood, the water now surging round them. Oh, they're all right, he exclaimed quickly. If that building over there, your hotel, I take it, to which I saw some running as I came down the track, holds out. So you are Bert Summers, he said, his glance meeting hers. I always understood he was, well, quite different. Oh, I didn't really mean to deceive you. My name, you see, she continued hurriedly, is Bertha, and I just jumbled the last letter, never thinking we should meet. But you're not sorry, tell me, we have met. I claim, you see, to have known you quite a long time already. I, of course, I am pleased to see you, Mr. Fanshawe, she returned naively, with a demure little smile. Mr. Fanshawe, he repeated reproachfully. I thought we were friends and that you had agreed to call me Jack. Oh, but that was before we met and and it wasn't often, you know, she replied confusedly. But we are friends still, Miss Bertha, he said eagerly. And if his eyes met hers and with a woman's quick perception, she read in them the unspoken question. He saw the warm colour flush her cheeks as she looked quickly away, but the hand he held was not immediately withdrawn, and Jack Fanshawe was well content. From their secure haven in the tree, they watched the progress of the flood. The operator's room at the depot still stood, 
though the waters were pouring through the shattered lower parts of it, while by the edge of the clearing, the lumbermen's low cabins rose like tiny islets from the encircling waters which lapped against the windows. Almost as quickly as it had risen, the flood abated, its waters finding a ready escape down the valley through which the track had run westward. Three hours later, they had fallen below the embankment, through a wide gap in which the creek, swollen to a broad river, poured its dim waters. The sun was just sinking over the western hills as they descended from the tree and stood on the embankment. They paused a moment, looking up to the gulch, on the higher slopes of which the decaying miners' cabins still stood untouched by the flood. Something that glittered in a deep cavity left by a boulder the waters had loosened on the lower slopes a short distance up the gulch from where they stood caught Fanshawe's glance. He gave a sudden shout and the next instant had dropped down the embankment and was forcing his way towards the spot through two or three feet of water that still intervened. Stooping down, he plunged both hands into the cavity and filling his cap with the sodden clay, washed it in the waters of the swollen creek. The colour! he shouted, waving his hand to the girl who had watched his actions in bewildered amazement. The next moment he was crossing the intervening water to her side. Look! A pocket in the lost load, he cried. It means fortune, love, everything! For a long moment she stared, not yet comprehending. Then, at the sight of the dull, gleaming specks of metal in the brown earth, in a quick flash understood. I can ask in honour the question now, Bertha, he said slowly his eyes searching and holding hers. Can you return my love, dear? It was yours all along, I think, Jack, she murmured, her face pressed against his breast. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. We recently asked some members of the Oddfellows to call in and let us know what qualities they look for in a friend, and we're delighted to be able to share some of their answers. Hi, I'm Anne, an Oddfellows member from Flintshire. A friend is someone who is a good listener and always makes you smile. Hi, this is Alex. I'm an Oddfellows member from Somewhy. A friend should be someone you can have good fun with and laughs and jokes and you know, wall away the hours and not have to work. Deborah Haley, Halifax, and the answer is a good listener and a good sense of humour is always a bonus. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, The Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. 
That was The Cloudburst at Pine Creek, An American Adventure, which was first published in The People's Friend on March 7th, 1910. That story was narrated for us by friend production editor Judy, who joins me now. Hello, Judy. Hello. We're also joined by friend editor Angela. Hello, Angela. Hello. And David from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, David. Hi, everyone. So, uh, The Cloudburst at Pine Creek, a distinctly American adventure. Actually, I would say that it probably is. I thought that one thing this story did really well was um, it had a really strong sense of place. Uh, I thought the descriptions of the the scenery and the um, little shack that um, the the operator finds herself in and mm-hmm. the, the hill with um, abandoned miners' cabins and all that kind of stuff, I thought that was all very evocative of Western movies I watched as a kid. Yes, maybe that was it, but they'd certainly done their research. Mm-hmm. Because it, it was very convincing in that respect. And actually, this story is by a chap called W.D. Morris. Um, we have featured W.D. Morris uh, in the podcast before. We did, in season one, a story called The Girl Engine Driver, um, which was by Mr. Morris. And it's set in a very similar place um, in the kind of shadow of the Sierras. And it's set on the same train line, which is called mm. the CP&K. Uh, I was going to, had I been organised, um, had I suddenly found myself being an organised human being, <laughs> I was going to look up to see if this was an actual existing train I'm line. a nerd, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> see, this is why we have the archives guys on Yeah, this I couldn't find it, but I think it's harking to the Canadian Pacific yeah. um, train line, which um, in, in the name, that's the only thing I can think of. Um, Because it does seem to be set California, San Francisco, moving out into the Nevada, Sierras, that kind of side of America. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and it certainly evokes that kind of um, Wild West slightly yeah thing going is it west hold on yeah it is west (laughs) (laughs) the duma kind of thing i had a mad panic when i saw the story when i saw the title of this story about um this the words an american adventure panicked me because if you hark back to series one i think the very first podcast we did which i was part of was the um the robbers one was it that was called a night among robbers Right, yes. an American yeah. adventure, which actually was not American in the slightest, except for I think the word <laughs> dollar turned up somewhere. And otherwise, it could actually have been set in Sirencester or somewhere. You know, it's just like. Whereas this one did have much more of that sense of place. Um, and the descriptions were quite evocative. And I kind of. There was quite a lot of scene setting at the beginning, I felt. And mm-hmm. you kind of got that feeling of remoteness and out in the wilderness and at the end of the line where the kind of the express trains don't stop, you know, Carnoustie, I think it's called. Um, (laughs) It was very much of its time, wasn't it, as well? Because it was, it's a vanished way of communication, really, the whole telegraph operator and the the man who has to live way up in the mountains just to to keep the lines in good order. You know, it's it's such a, a snapshot of technology that has long been, been superseded but I Mm -hmm. I found that quite interesting about it that it was very much of its time and of course it references the earthquake in San Francisco as well in Mm -hmm. in 1906 so um, it was very rooted in a particular time and place which I thought was a strength of the story. Did anybody else wonder if W.D. Morris Mm. was a woman? No. I don't think I did. I think that something about the kind of 
I don't know, rugged setting of this made me think that W.D. Morris is a guy. I don't know if that's mm. a horribly sexist thing to say. Probably. I couldn't find out anything about him. I've been, I was turning kind of things upside down trying to find... Yeah, the only reason I wondered was because, as you said, we'd done that one before and it was a female engine driver and now we've got a female telegraph operator. Uh, I just yeah. wondered. And I did wonder whether kind of how many telegraph operators would have been women because the the girl engine driver of the story made a big deal about how mm -hmm. this is not usual. But just the fact that the guy had assumed that she would be a guy in this yeah. one. Well, she kind of did that herself, didn't she, with, with her name. She wasn't entirely honest about yeah, her name. Yeah. I didn't think for a minute that W.D. Morris was a woman because if you go through the story carefully, Bertha has no character. She is referred to as the little operator, the little woman throughout the story. That could have been story. the sub, though. <laughs> um, but, but she has no backstory. She's just pitched up at this place because she lost her job in the earthquake. So, so there's nothing to her. She's just a cipher. She's yeah. there to be the damsel that Jack rescues. Jack's got the exciting backstory. He was a hero. He took the blame for an accident that wasn't his fault and ended up up a pole in the middle of nowhere as penance. <laughs> Quite literally. Um, <laughs> You know, and she she's just there to be rescued, pretty much. Yeah. So, so I think W. D. Morris is a man. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think, that, you, I don't think you need sexist. to apologise. <laughs> I, I like how we're characterised. We're we're nailing the characterisation based on the fact that female character is completely blank. I know. She kind but of she, was, though. It has well, to be she said. is. She, she, she is really very is. 2D. She's not actively like wet like some of the female characters that we get in no, the stories but she's, that we've she's a wee at. bit damp around the edges <laughs> she's, she's, she's literally wet because she gets caught in that cloud burst <laughs> ends up up a tree with a man she's only just met like, yeah but she can't mm. even climb the tree without his help <laughs> ah, but he, he managed to pull her up there effortlessly that was with nice. his big muscular arms yes yes, <laughs> yes. Did, did anybody else spot the plot flaw, if I'm understanding the communications technology correctly, when Jack is up his pole, up the mountains and sees the cloud burst, why does he jump on a cart and chug his way down the railway to, to raise the alarm? Why doesn't he just wire the alarm from his pole? Or, or am I misunderstanding how communication works? I think you'd have just spoiled the story. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> Is this one of those Titanic moments like you could have both fit on that door? <laughs> Probably. Actually, yeah. I don't know, because how... I'm presuming that Telegraph, it's it's the wee Morse code clickers. Mm -hmm. So would he have one of them up the pole with him that he could wire into the the system and use? No, That was kind of how I read the communication in the first place. You know, the first contact between them was that he mm -hmm. was mending the pole and, and was wiring well, from yeah, there. Well, yeah, I suppose. Um, the mm -hmm. thing I thought you were going to say was the, the cloud burst... Um, happens and they have this kind of flood war and he says when while they're up the tree he says don't worry about an hour or two and an hour or two and everything will be fine but it says that the cloud burst has burst the dam so i would presume <laughs> that that's a lot more than an hour or two's worth of water that's coming down that hill. well they were up there it was it not three hours they were up there in the end <laughs> a very well could have been uh he, he's, maybe he's optimistic with his estimates because um, I thought that's a long time to be up a tree with a man you don't know. Yeah. Or don't know that well. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not happening in Chaucer, am I thinking the wrong story? <laughs> it's not a Chaucer story where something happens in a tree. The next podcast episode is the Canterbury Tales. It's much longer. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think we can safely say, though, that W.D. Morris is not an author to allow a few facts to get in the way of a good yarn. <laughs> mm. <laughs> a good Doesn't, adventure. Yeah. Yes. So do you think they were actually physically speaking to each other or do you think it's been Morse code all the way through? Because the language is interesting because the only person that speaks with an American drawl is um, is the Mr. Ford, Hank Ford. Although not when I was reading it, I'm sorry. but <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to re-record it with the American accents. You know, um, he's the only one that's got that. And then they're quite, you know, good English. And then there's not, the American thing kind of drops away in some ways, in terms of the accent anyway, because maybe it's just too hard to keep writing in that style. Um, but I wasn't sure if they were actually speaking or not, or whether it was all Morse code. Because if they were speaking and he thinks that she's a bloke... <laughs> <laughs> Which, sorry sorry yeah. to spoil it for anybody out there that's today's wordle word um, <laughs> it beat me no, yeah. if it um if it does uh you know if if he thinks she, well, maybe she's got quite a deep voice i don't know <laughs> yeah, i think all the communications prior to that had yeah. been uh, it's, it's more squid isn't it yeah yeah because yeah. she reprimands him for going too fast at yeah. one stage not when they're up the tree, I notice. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, does he not say that her, her coding skills are a little bit rusty and he's yes. going to give her some instruction to make her Well, make him. him. Make him. Yes. Yes, he's, that's he's right. still make being him, um, but that's right. he catfished know. at that point. <laughs> 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 he, uh, I would say he gets over that rather quickly. It is very much yeah. love at first sight, isn't it? Or that yeah. seems to be yeah. the indication. And it sounds like he's probably been a bit confused when he's up in the cabin. <laughs> in what sense? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Am I blushing? Am I so kind of <laughs> I think, I mean, I know that it's, it's mid-rescue when he turns up and he says, where's the operator? And she says, I'm the operator here. Are you telling me that he wasn't going to take an extra second to go, no, no, the, the guy, the guy I was talking to? I was more bothered when I see that. There's obviously something happening. There's somebody very much in distress in front of him and he goes, where's the guy? It's just like, <laughs> yeah, not you. It's just like, what? <laughs> I don't want to sort you out. You can sort yourself out. <laughs> There are trees all over the place. Help yourself. <laughs> Did you notice as well, though, she was only in distress in the first place because she fell asleep when she was at work? Ah. Yes. Imagine. You know, I mean, what, what on earth was going on there that she, she fell asleep reading her book on electricity? Well, you know, maybe, well, <laughs> maybe that know, would be enough to say. Which was a sleep. gift from him. So, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> yes. <"Ooh." laughs> But she was, a, every, all the other townspeople got themselves to safety at the hotel and they just left her. She's not a great ambassador for STEM subjects. <laughs> 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 We've talked about in the past how some of the stories from this kind of era in the friend tend to have a strong moral message. So perhaps the moral message is don't fall asleep at work. And don't go up the tree with strangers. <laughs> well, no, that I don't seems know. To be fine. She, seemed, she seemed to be kind of, she, she was kind of feeling something towards him. Yeah. Yes. And his kind of aspirational qualities about, you know, he wants to get away from this job and be out of the hills and look into his future. And she was mm -hmm. finding that an, an attractive quality in him. Yes. I think, though, that to People's Friend Readers in 1910, this must have been quite, an, quite a thrilling story of, you know, life in a place where yeah. it was completely different. The circumstances Very were completely escapist. different to what they knew at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it would be a thrilling American adventure. They wouldn't they wouldn't be seeing movies on TV all the time with this way of life portrayed. It would be completely different and I know, exciting. It's quite interesting, actually, that because I was thinking about all the stories that, well, many of the stories that we've covered have been quite 
you know, there has to be some drama or some action or some adventurousness because, of course, they wouldn't have had TVs in their house mm-hmm. and things like that in 1910, probably. And nowadays, it's the sort of subjects of the stories that we publish nowadays, more or less, are very much more sort of domestic, they're sort of smaller, they're less dramatic on the whole. So you would think you would you would kind of think that given that we have all this in our living rooms, it would need to be even more dramatic for people mm-hmm. to read, but it seems to have gone the other way. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That it is complete escapism, this story. Yeah. Maybe in a way that we don't do so much of today. Yeah. I, I I went away and did a little bit of looking into kind of the whole Western genre and of films, which were around at this time. Uh-huh. So America I suppose America is one of those places where lots of people would have had family that would have emigrated to at this point, if not gone a little bit earlier, um, and connections, and it's it's out there. And there were film, oh, there was some early kind of films happening in the late 1890s, early 1900s, which um, you know would have given a flavour of what America looked like and maybe felt like a little bit in that kind of slightly adventurous way. And also at that time, kind of Buffalo Bill and stuff like that's quite. He, he's touring the UK in the late 1890s, early mm-hmm. 1900s. So that kind of American flavor is coming into the UK and touring around Scotland and England and everywhere else and even kind of uh, Central Europe. Um, so, you know, America's not a completely foreign land, but it's still got that taste of the exotic. And I think that comes through a little bit to me in this story in the way that they describe the landscape and the way that the um, that kind of like... Um, out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. The the thought that I had, um, picking up on Judy's point where she's she's speaking about kind of closer drama, kind of domestic drama, some of the ones that we've covered here um in the podcast have also been um story like family stories. And to me a lot of them feel kind of claustrophobic. Uh, because a lot of them are taking place in sort of dim rooms, like yeah. lamplit rooms and things and Usually, I don't know, because it's the the British weather, it's probably raining outside uh, and and people are generally a little bit miserable. And then when you start the story the way that W.D. Morris has started this story, it's sort of, it's expansive. There's It talks about how there's miles and miles of trees and it's all the Sierras and there's gulches, whatever they are. Um, like it's, uh, it feels kind of tonally probably a lot different to even the stories that they would be reading there in the magazine, or at least a, a fair proportion of them. Mm-hmm. So do you mean Big Bear Mountain doesn't appear in uh, The Peavers? <laughs> <laughs> would you believe no? Um, the illustration that accompanies this story um, is really interesting as well, because from what you were saying, David, about uh, Western films that were appearing at the time, the the way that this illustration is done reminds me of the start of things like... Uh, Oh, what do you call it now? Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> Little House on the Prairie. And the the other one, the Bonanza, um, <laughs> and things like that. The, the I'll put this um, image up on our social channels when we release this episode, but it, it looks like the starting credits to a a television show. Mm-hmm. It's the, the cloudburst at Pine Creek is sort of um, superimposed over this landscape. Um, you can imagine it being that kind of sickly yellow text that they used for some reason for um, shows like that in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it, yeah, it made me think a lot of that 
kind of escapism as well, mm-hmm. the sort of folk huddling around the telly watching Michael Landon, <laughs> I don't know, take someone to school or something. I don't know what happened in Little House on the Prairie. I think the opening is, we've spoken about the opening of the story and how descriptive it is, and it is, but the ending is, is I think we would all agree, quite rushed. Yeah. Um, Very much so. And that's in common with a lot of the stories from this era, isn't yeah. it? And it is quite an interesting trend that, that they do seem to finish very quickly in a way that we would think was was rushed today. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, the old films like The African Queen. There's there's loads of, of old films that, from around about that era that they stop so abruptly. They they kind of just get, The African Queen's a great example because I think they just have their, their first kiss, don't they? And then the film stops. It's like the end comes up in in um, big letters on the screen. And I don't know if it's if it was taste that, you know, you just got to the end and it stopped or if in the magazine they ran out of space. It's, <laughs> yeah, I it's don't think intriguing. It, I don't think it's a why. space thing, I think, because all these stories seem to be pretty much the same length and the way it's paginated in the magazine doesn't give any indication that, you know, they're having to cram something in. Um, but I wondered if it went back to what Judy said um, earlier, which was about um, there has to be some sort of big piece of action and actually them getting together at the end isn't the important thing. And it's the kind of the big heroic rescue and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of lead up to that is the is the focus of these stories. And you've seen it in some of the other stories where everything wraps up very neatly mm-hmm. towards the in the last kind of one sixth of yeah, the it's story. Like the action's the important thing. Yeah. Yeah, and the, sto- the and the story is called the cloudburst at Pine Creek. It's not called the romance at Pine no. Creek <laughs> or gold at Pine Creek. The cloudburst is yes. yeah, or gold, yeah, which was glossed over yeah. remarkably quickly, wasn't it? Right, I've made my fortune, found a woman, great. Well, the I end. think I, I'm interested <laughs> to know what they did because at the beginning, Hank says something along the lines of, "Oh, you know, well, we're looking for that missing load that they know exists mm-hmm. and has gone because it will make the town prosperous." And he's just found it, got it, got the woman, and is now hoping to clear off and get an office job somewhere. Yeah, well, that'll teach them to leave her in the hut while the rest of them went to safety. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, didn't he go? He went to the pub, didn't he? Uh, Hank went to the pub. He did, yes. (laughs) Yes, I think Hank had a habit of going to the pub. I think that came across in the story. Yes, well, he deserves all he gets. We we should take a moment to... uh, appreciate how American the name Hank Ford is. <laughs> yeah. We were being left in no uh, no uncertain terms that Hank is an American man. I wish I wish we knew more about the author. I wish we knew if he was an American or if this is a a UK based writer mm-hmm. or, trying to create an American atmosphere and story. It would be fascinating to know. Thinking back to the girl engine driver from season one, um it's exciting the description of kind of the train flying through this big forest fire uh, is is all very dramatic, and the description of the cloud burst here is all mm-hmm. is pretty dramatic as well. So it seems like Mister Morris falls down a little bit when he starts trying to consider the relationships between real human beings yeah. and how they're supposed to go from yeah. <laughs> A to B to C. But the the ending thing happens a lot, as you say. There's a, there are lots of endings where suddenly it'll happen. And I found this one, there's a lot of them that haven't been terribly convincing, um, but I found this one particularly strange because he's just had this, they've just had this big dramatic event. He's also just found out that Bert, who he's been talking to, is a woman. Um, which is something that he had no, allegedly no idea of before. Well, they kind of hint to it. It says like there's something about um, something about him p- 
peculiarly sympathetic, peculiarly sympathetic, or something like that. Yeah. So there's allusions to it, and he he seems to be feeling some sort of something beyond friendship is the kind of the thing. But he's probably a bit confused because hold on, it's a bloke. Um, <laughs> and then he's like, "Gold, uh, excellent. Let's uh, gold. Let's get on with our job. Lives. Yay! <laughs> let's get <laughs> That's what it should have been subtitled, the gold woman job. Yes. <laughs> but interesting in the, the telling of the story, the structure of the story, I think, because it starts off being Bertha's story, but it ends up being Jack's. Yeah, very and much that's, so. And that's a kind of switch in focus and viewpoint that we just would not have in a modern mm -hmm. story. So, so the, the actual nuts and bolts of storytelling is different here. Yeah, but I think it comes back to the, it's all about the action. They yeah. don't really care about the characters yeah. particularly. Yeah. So if this story had been submitted to the magazine today, um, the guidance would be maybe stick with one character's point of view and maybe make it slightly more convincing. Yeah. <laughs> I think, <laughs> well, I think it would be, it, it's fine to have more than one viewpoint mm -hmm. character, but you, you need to know where you are at each point and it needs to, to be Bertha's story with, and Jack can have a viewpoint or vice versa, but it can't, I don't think it really ties up for modern taste um, the way it is. But I think I would have sent it back instantly because of that flaw around the whole, <laughs> why did you not just wire down instead of getting on that cart? And He just wanted a workout. He's got muscular arms and they take some upkeep. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> We've made it 25 yeah. whole minutes into this episode and I haven't found a way of working and he was a lineman for the county. Well, do you know, <laughs> I've written down right at the bottom of my notes that it reminded me of Wichita lineman by Glenn Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> I've just I've just been gagging for an opportunity to say that. <laughs> right. Well, um what we are doing this season in the podcast is to give these stories a rating. Um the ultimate aim of which is the story with the highest rating will be reprinted in the magazine uh when the season concludes later in the year. Mm. Um I in the last few episodes we've recorded, I've been saying uh, things like we have some stories that have good scores, we have some stories that have mediocre scores. Um, as of a recording last week, we have a story that has a truly awful score. <laughs> um, so this this one is in no danger of of bringing up the rear, is what I'm saying. But uh, we'll we'll put a rating to it and see how we get on. Um, Judy, what do you think? Out of out of ten, is how we're doing this to consider all the stuff that we've been speaking about and the way it was written and... Yeah, I, th I think it's worth a six. A six is a strong score. Um, David, what do you think? Oh, I think I was going to go with a five just because the kind of the idea of the story is okay, but I think the execution's a bit meh mm. <laughs> at times. Um, <laughs> to use the technical term, so yeah, I'm going with five. We've got strong literary analysis from the <laughs> reading between the lines. Um, and Angela, what do you think? I'm going to go for a five as well, because I think that there is some really good descriptive writing in this, but there's also some dreadful characterization and that awful plot flaw that I don't like at all. And also the line about what girl is indifferent to the ambitions of a man in whom she feels interested, which is just <laughs> awful. So it's five from me. <laughs> are, you, are you suggesting that that's not the case or um, I don't understand? <laughs> I just don't know anybody ever who in Bertha's situation would actually say that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for, for me, I think if we're looking at glaring flaws, 
I I just can't quite get past. Uh, so you've been lying to me about your sexual identity for <laughs> approximately six months, but now I'm absolutely fine with it because gold. <laughs> um, the gold came after he'd kind of fallen. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, you know, that's true. just like the, the the icing on the cake, really, for him. Don't know about Bertha, because <laughs> she doesn't actually say anything. No, she doesn't well, have enough character to know. <laughs> there, it actually, does the story say what her impression of him is? Because she's never seen him either. No, I think so that's it does not time. end up with her basically just, um, she's got her hand, their hands touch and she doesn't withdraw it immediately. And I think that's about the last thing that she does. <laughs> and then you never hear from her again. No, no that is how much personality she has. <laughs> well what an excellent note to end this episode on <laughs> um, so it just remains for me to say thank you to Judy for her narration and thank you to David and Angela for joining us and until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you cheerio thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6. And that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hasty back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend